Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm troubled by the fact that some people think that in a country where we don't have blasphemy laws, that we must respect their religion mm-hmm. and their right to insist upon their religion being treated differently to others' ways of thinking. If you come to the West as I have, or if your parents have brought you to the West, you have a duty to integrate into this society. That doesn't mean you have to go down the pub and smash 10 pints back every Saturday, but it does mean that you adopt some of the values and you understand that, yes, maybe in your culture, criticizing your religious figure is wrong and bad and perhaps even punishable by death. But you don't live in that society. You've chosen to come here and you have to adjust, not the society. Hello and welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Constantine Kissin. Constantine, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back and so soon after our last conversation I know, as well. Yeah, I should say welcome back to the show because you were on just a few months ago when we were primarily talking about our shared horror about what Russia was doing in Ukraine. Uh, we might actually talk a bit about Russia in this one as well, because that's where you're from and you you mention it in your new book. Uh, but primarily, I want to talk about your new book and uh, about the West, which is what your new book is about. So your new book is An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. I highly recommend it to listeners. It's a really, really good, important read. And there's a lot for us to dig down into in relation to this book. But I want to kick off by just asking you what triggered you, so to speak, <laughs> to write this. Now, the one thing that stood out for me when I was reading it and enjoying it is there is a there's a chapter that's called Trust Me, West is Best. And I just started thinking, if you had said that 30 years ago, it would have been uncontroversial. People would have agreed that living in the West was preferable to living in the Soviet Union. Living in the first world was better than living in the third world. Having freedom of speech and consumer rights and the ability to get most things you needed was better than not being able to do those things. It would have been quite an uncontroversial thing to say West is best. But now it's tantamount to a far-right speech crime, and it's definitely racist to say something like that. Mm. So what got you thinking that you needed to sit down and spend a significant chunk of your time writing a book defending the West? The very thing that you've just said, Brendan, which is we seem to have forgotten some very obvious and basic things about the way the world really is. Mm. And I feel it's a genuine responsibility of people like me who come to our society here in the West from the outside to point out something that we, as you say, have forgotten in the last 30 years, which is there is a very good reason that people like me and many, many other people seek to come to Western countries like Britain, like the United States and others. Uh, And that is that these countries are safer, more prosperous, they are freer uh, on almost every metric. Look, they're not perfect societies, of course, but on almost every metric that we would care to, to measure a society on, they are better than almost everywhere else in the world. And 
I think the reason we've forgotten this is it's not just accident. It's not just that when you have something and it's not challenged and it's not put in question and you're never having to defend it against enemies or anything like that, then of course you start to take it for granted a little bit. But I also think, as you know, that in recent decades, there has been a, a very strong directed push to demoralize uh, Western people, to tell them, to feed them a tale about them that makes them think that they're bad, that they're evil, that they're somehow responsible for things that people did two or 300 years ago who looked vaguely like them and may have been sort of of the same ethnicity, but probably weren't even that. So that concerted push is, is one of the things I wanted to uh, counter with the book. And uh, the reason it's called An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, I'm, I'm actually referencing a book, a small book uh, by a guy called Yuri Bezmenov, who was a KGB defector mm-hmm. uh, who talked uh, many decades ago about how the Soviet Union was attempting to demoralize Western countries, especially the United States. And he wrote a book called A Love Letter to America. Mm. And so I wanted <laughs> to reference that in the title of my book, uh, because I do think the process of demoralization, whether it's been directed and intentional intentional or whether it's accidental or whether for some reason we're uniquely vulnerable to these sort of ideologies at the moment uh whatever the reason i am deeply concerned about the lack of confidence that we have in our own societies in our own values the lack of the ability frankly to even define them brendan i think if you walk up to a random british person in the street and say say to them what are british values they will react with shock and fear at the very idea that these things exist and of course now we have seen as we talked about earlier in recent months, that these values are genuinely under threat. Mm-hmm. We do have enemies. We do have people who would capitalize and take advantage of of our own a lack of confidence and lack of self belief. And that's that's what I th- that's why I thought it was an important moment in which to articulate something. And you know, I hope that you know you and I obviously agree on a lot of these things. And I I, I would have hoped that someone like you would enjoy the book. But I actually wrote it in a way that I was really hopeful that people who may be not in Mm. line with my views would be able to read and not in line with your views would be able to read. And to see the West through a foreigner's eyes and to hopefully get a bit of perspective on our societies from someone who genuinely comes from the outside. Yeah, and that comes through very strongly in in lots of the book, and in also how it's written. It, there, it's it's some of it is like a conversation with someone who might not share your views on everything, but you want to ha- engage them in that kind of conversation, engage them in lots of facts and truths about what life in the West is really like, and and the possibility that it's not as horrendous as we are continually told. You you made a, a point there, which um, I'd been thinking about previously, which is the question of why there is this drive in the West against the West. So uh, I, I I was thinking that, you know, with the end of the Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet U- Union, which was a boon for humankind in many ways, because whenever uh, an authoritarian regime falls, that's good. And when the Berlin Wall came down, that was very good. These were great, wonderful developments that people fought for and won at great cost. Uh, and one of the things I've always thought, and it's, this is not an original point at all, many people think this, is that the uh, an ironic result of the collapse of the Soviet Union is that the West lost that other thing that it could advertise itself against. So the thing that it had been doing throughout the whole Cold War, which is, you know, we are not the Soviet Union, we are 
different. They are evil. We are good. It was no no longer able to do that. So there was a collapse in its ability to define what it was about. And I think that's probably a contributory factor to lots of the things that you write about in this book. But as you've just said there, something else has happened since then, which there uh, uh, there has become almost like an ideological drive, a kind of zeal to say, we're really awful in the West. You know, we're, we're terrible people. We have a terrible history. Uh, our culture is not worth much at all. The Enlightenment is, is not everything it was cracked up to be. So we've gone from struggling to define why the West is good to adamantly not wanting to do that. And I wanted to get your view on, on how that came about. So you, the way you present your book, you say that it's an attempt to diagnose the malaise afflicting Western society and to offer some solutions to that malaise. So how, how did this malaise come about? How is it tied to the events of the late 20th century? Why have we, in quite fast order, got to a situation where, where we have an academy, a media, um, large sections of the political class that are now devoted to doing the West down rather than holding up its values? Human beings respond to incentives, Brendan, as we know, and it has been the incentive for uh, quite some time now to talk down the West, to find fault, to criticize. And look, by the way, these are all important things. We should never be in a society where we think we're all perfect mm -hmm. in every way. But if we only incentivize people in the academia, in the media and elsewhere who want to tell those stories, yeah. uh, then of course you're going to end up with a lot of those stories being told and all of this being rewarded. Uh, and eventually you'd get to a position where you have a culture like the one I describe in the book where I went on a TV program in this country to discuss an issue of race and immigration. And afterwards, uh, one of the presenters sort of, I think inadvertently said to me, well, I'm so glad there weren't any white British people here to discuss mm -hmm. this. And I couldn't work out why, why they would say this to me because if I'd wanted to leak this and make this public at the time, I think that person would have been in an awful lot of trouble. And they clearly knew that I wasn't coming at it from the angle that they were coming at it from. And it was only when I really thought about it that I realized the reason that this person felt able to say this and comfortable to say this is that in their world, this sort of thinking is normal. And I think that the part of the, uh, you know, the drive to address the genuine racial inequalities that existed in this country even when I came here in 1995, you know, what people now call representation, we were not doing as well on that as we might have hoped. I think we'd all agree with that. In the pursuit of balancing out some of the wrongs of the past, we just didn't know when to stop. And I think we kept going to the point where you, you look at the Tory leadership election now. Uh, I think uh, Matt Goodwin put out a tweet talking about how there are more ethnic minority candidates in the Tory leadership race than have ever been in a Labour cabinet, yeah. than have ever <laughs> been in the House of Lords for Labour, etc., etc., etc. So we've got to a point now in society where if you're talented, if you're hardworking, if you're dedicated, you're not really going to be held back by the color of your skin or by your sex or by your sexuality. You have the potential to make it. But the machine that was created in order to try and advance some of these causes is at this point self-necessitating. Yeah. It, it has to feed itself. And it was the great American philosopher, Eric Hoffer, who said that every great cause starts out as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket. <laughs> and diversity, inclusion, and all of this now, it's become a racket. It was a business up until a few years ago, and now it's just a straight-up racket that's not helping anyone except the people who are involved in that business.
Okay, so before we uh, talk a bit more about how that racket came about and the damage that it's doing to people's understanding of the West and people's sense of belonging in their own society, uh, let's go back to the beginning a little bit. You mentioned there coming to the UK. So obviously you were not born in the UK. You were born in Russia. People will know you as the guy, one of the guys at Trigonometry, a stand-up comedian, someone who says what he thinks, and uh, the author of this new book. People might not know your backstory in great detail. So, And uh, this book does touch on some of that. And one of the things I found really fascinating about the book is that at, at the beginning, you describe a little bit what it was like being in Russia, even though you were in the Soviet Union. You were a child at the time. The Soviet Union was definitely on the way out in the 1980s. It was not in its prime at all, and it would shortly collapse. But you have some memory of living there. And there's this really powerful part in the book where you talk about how one of the things that your family impressed on you all the time, even though you would have been very, very young, is don't repeat conversations that you have at home outside, be careful what you say, just watch yourself all the time. So you have some direct experience of, of the kind of thing that some of us are worried about happening in the West recently, which is that feeling that you need to keep your opinions to yourself, that you can't be as expressive or as free as you would like to be. So could you just outline why your family was saying those kinds of things to you and what the culture was like, even in late stage Soviet Union, when it came to the ability of people to think and speak freely? Well, let's remember that you say it was on the way out. Of course, none of us knew that. Yeah. Uh, nobody yeah. in the Soviet Union knew that that system was about to collapse. And what we all knew was that only 20, 30, 40 years previously, which is within living memory, that is, you could hear it from your own parents and grandparents, your family could be arrested, put in a mm -hmm. camp or executed mm -hmm. because you made a joke or a comment about the leader of the country only a few decades previously. So first of all, the feeling of terror that people felt about expressing their opinions in public, particularly about political leaders and, and politics in general, it was handed down from previous generations, number one. But also, uh, you know, if you're talking about comparisons with the modern West, as you know, later in the book, I talk about my grandfather who made some comments about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, yep. which happened in 1979. Hmm. As a result of that, he was made unemployable. His friends, many of them ostracized him, not because they disagreed with him, but because he was considered a person with whom one must not associate mm -hmm. if one wanted to retain a career. And eventually that's how he ended up leaving the country and ending up in the UK. Is that so different to where we are now? Uh, my grandfather, he, he, when he made those comments, one of the reasons that he did is he was fed up of something that was happening at his academic institution where he worked because every few months or every few weeks, letters would be passed around where everyone had to sign up and say, we comrades, blah, 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 and blah, 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 condemn the such and such person who's made such and such comment. Is that so different to where we are now? So of course, I, I know how people naturally balk when I compare some elements of what's happening in the West with the Soviet Union, because they're thinking of, you know, the Stalinist repressions, yeah. the purges, the 1930s. But actually, many of the things that are happening societally in the West today uh, remind me very much of the kind of environment that we lived in in the late Soviet era. And that was a society in which people were afraid to say what they think. The conversations around the kitchen table were the exact opposite of the conversations those same people would have in public. 
there was very little opportunity to push back on on the things that we were being told, and uh, that's where what they call samizdat. Uh, self-published literature came out. Now, if you look at the transformation of the media landscape that has happened in the last 10 years, let's say, channels like trim- trigonometry, I mean, I see that very much as a new form of Sam as that, where yeah. people with my opinions and with my interest would never have a, a, a shot anywhere near the mainstream media in the past. If you wanted to start a YouTube show or a podcast like Trigonometry under the umbrella of a major publication five years ago when we started it, no chance in hell was that going to happen. So we are in a position now where the levels of restriction on what we can and can't say, what you can and can't think, the the, the narrowness of the Overton window, it's reminiscent to me of the, exactly the period that I lived through as a young boy. And one of the things that I love about the West so much is I thought I really was never going to experience that again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you have experienced it. And I, I wanted to draw some comparisons between um, your childhood memories and things that you've experienced in the UK more recently. And of course, I'm sensitive to the thing that you've just mentioned there, which is that anyone who makes this comparison between Britain in 2022 and, and the Soviet Union will be uh, dismissed as, you know, minimizing the crimes of the Soviet Union and so on. Now, of course, no one is saying that there are Stalin 1930s style purges. We don't have gulags in the UK. We all know this, but but there is unquestionably, and I think you've just outlined it very well there, there is unquestionably a similarity between some of the cultures, certainly in, in later Soviet Union, where you know the finger pointing, the loss of jobs, the ostracization, all those kinds of things are happening in the West. I mean, they just undeniably are. When you have someone like Kathleen Stock being hounded out of Sussex University for her views on, on gender, you have round robin letters where academics will denounce other academics for not saying the right thing on Black Lives Matter or some other issue. You know, cancel culture is a real thing. And there are many people out there who do not say in public what they think in, and say in private. That That is, especially on those flashpoint issues like the trans issue, for example, or immigration or, or whatever else it might be. So that culture has developed. And, and w- one of the great ironies of, of your life, I suppose, which is is worth dwelling on, is that you, ha- you have those memories from your childhood and your family have uh, even more memories of that kind of life in the Soviet Union. You come to the UK, you're thinking, right, I'm in the West, it's free. And you wind up as a stand-up comedian who is punished for refusing to fill in a form that will say, you know, that says, I will not make offensive jokes, or I will adhere to the rules of the safe space. I will be compliant in terms of what issues I talk about and what issues I make jokes about. So you you hit the headlines a a couple of years ago because you were basically being pressured to sign this form saying, I will not be an offensive comedian. So uh, what does that make someone like you think, and, and your family, I guess, think, in terms of coming to the West and then having experiences there are are at least similar to things that were happening in the Soviet Union in the 70s and the 80s. Well, it, it's troubling. I, I wouldn't say that I was punished. I think I turned the contract down and yeah. look, the long the long term outcome is is 
has been beneficial to me yeah. because standing up for your principles always is actually in my mm. experience. Not always, perhaps, uh, you know, <laughs> the people who were burnt at the stake 200 years ago might disagree. But uh, certainly from my perspective, I wouldn't say that I was punished. I think there were a lot of people who disliked me for it, particularly in the comedy industry, ironically. Uh, but uh, there was also a lot of people, obviously, who who felt that I'd done the, run th the right thing. But it is troubling. And one of the reasons is, and I felt so strongly about it at the time, Brendan, is that most people don't know this, but of course, in the Soviet Union, there was no political satire. There was no stand-up comedy circuit. There was no idea of mocking the people in power. This was unheard of, and anyone who did it would be immediately uh, punished very severely. I'm, I'm talking about put in the camp, executed, whatever, for even writing a book that was perceived as being critical, yeah. even if it was allegorical in nature. But what happened when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991 was Boris Yeltsin comes to power, becomes prime minister, and he's this liberating, freedom-fighting figure. And he opens up the space for comedians, for satirists to come and actually make fun of politicians for the first time. And as a result of that, we had our own version of spitting image, which was called <laughs> Kukli, dolls, uh, puppets, probably more accurately. And it was incredible. The whole country would sit down and watch this because mm. it was unprecedented. I would have been 10 years old or 12 years old, whatever I would have been when it was active. And it was fantastic. The whole family would sit down to watch it. The jokes were brilliant. The, the politicians would get skewered. And of course, the first thing that Vladimir Putin did when he came to power is shut all of that down. Yeah. And so I have seen in my own lifetime that the absence of satire, the absence of the ability to mock the powerful is a symptom of tyranny. That is what it is. And whether that is tyranny of an individual leader who's decided that they don't want to be mocked, or whether it's the tyranny of a group of people who've advanced an ideology and captured institutions, nonetheless, if you cannot mock people who are in power, who are in charge of our institutions, who are in charge of the country, you've got a big, big problem. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, the freedom to mockery is a very good litmus test about society and social freedom more broadly. Um, at, which is one of the reasons why the questions that you and others have been raising about the shrinking of free thought, even in the sphere of comedy, uh, are, are very important. And by the way, Brendan, sorry, to just, just to jump in as well, legislatively now, we saw under the supposedly liberal Tory Boris Johnson, the attempt, and who knows what will happen now, I'm glad that there are some candidates in the Tory leadership who may uh, making overtures about reversing some of these attempts, but the online harms, the online yeah. safety bill, whatever it's called. I mean, some of the repercussions of that for our ability to make jokes, to speak freely, etc., online were enormous and incredibly pernicious. So it is not just, you know, we can talk about the woke left till we're blue in the face. Yeah. It's not just the woke left, actually. The, the freedom to speak, the freedom to mock, the freedom to joke is under threat from all sides of the political spectrum. And that's why all of us, those of us who understand that, have to be vigilant, whoever is in power. Absolutely. And yes, and one of the reasons I think Kemi Badenoch would be one of the best candidates, if not the best candidate, uh, because she has spoken out against the online harms bill. And I find the notion pushed by Nadine Dorries in particular, who, as you say, is not hardly a woke leftist, the notion that, you know, we want the safest internet in the world, and that should be a great aspiration. I find that quite chilling. You know, China has a very safe internet. I don't want that kind of internet. I want to take risks when I get up, go online. Okay, so I think one of the things that which comes through in the book quite a lot in different ways, 
is people in the West taking some of their freedoms for granted. And this is something I find, I was born in the UK, unlike you, my parents are foreigners, I'm British born. And it irritates even me that they that there are people, the ones I encounter tend to be younger people on campuses and so on. You often meet people and you think to yourself, you're just taking for granted the kind of freedoms that people around the world would give their left arm for. The freedom to stand up on your university campus and say pretty much whatever you want, which they are trying to undermine. Uh, the freedom to be expressive, to pursue cultural interests, to engage in art, all those wonderful things that many people around the world- To protest peacefully. To protest. I mean, we, we, could, we could be here for days. Yes. you know all that. The freedom not to die as an infant from disease, the freedom <laughs> yeah. to, to have enough money to survive, to feed your family, the freedom to uh, know what's going to come tomorrow, the stability. I mean, one of the things people massively underestimate is the extraordinary stability yeah. that we have in the West. And I personally experienced a period in Russian history, which is one of the reasons that people in Russia continue to support Vladimir Putin, a period in which society was turned upside down. Yeah. And it was so awful that they, they, they were craving for someone like Putin to come in and stabilize the whole thing because that's how bad it was. And here in the UK, we've never had that in, in certainly in, in, in living memory. Uh, we haven't had any occupation, people coming in and occupying your country and massacring your population, raping the women, killing the men, hasn't happened. So even those things yeah. are extraordinary privileges of the West that we don't think about. Think about how many people in the world right now are living in a war zone, yeah. are living within days of being invaded and massacred or starving to death right now, particularly with the global food price crisis. You know, we, the, the privileges that we enjoy, they're not just about, you know, these sort of civil liberties. They're about physical, right yeah. at the base of the Maslow hierarchy stuff. Yeah. The ability to have a roof over your head, to have food on the table, to survive until tomorrow, to not watch your children die in agony. These are things that really matter. And we have them extraordinarily so, unprecedented, not only in the world today, but of course, historically. And those are the things that I think even you and I take for granted yeah. at this point. Yeah. And, you know, when one thinks about the amount of time people around the world have to spend to get things that we get fairly easily in terms of a bit of warmth, a bit of water, a bit of food. I mean, it is just extraordinary how much human energy is still wasted on things that are easily achieved in in developed Western societies, and it, it, it really does infuriate me when people who were who, lucky enough to be born into these societies or to have moved to them uh, take it all for granted or or, or poo poo it as uh, you know the West has been a problematic place. But I, I wanted to, in relation to the question of freedom, which is something that you write about and talk about a lot, and we do at Spiked as well, uh, one thing that you talk about in the book, and you, it, it did make me laugh, there is this notion increasingly that freedom of speech is not only overrated or not enjoyed by all people, which I think is true, you know, so it's not equally uh, attainable, but there is now this idea that it is a far right idea. 
you know, if you if you are pro freedom of speech, you must be a fascist. And as you point out in the book, the great irony there, of course, is that fascists were not noted for their love for freedom of speech or any other kind of freedom. And there is this notion now, especially amongst some on the left, that the right wing assault on freedom of speech tends to take a different uh, uh, approach. But there's this notion now that free, if you want free speech, it's all about wanting dog whistles. You want to send mm. a message. You want to send a signal. You want to use it to do something unspeakably bad. That's the instant interpretation. How do you think we've got to that situation where something so incredibly important and wonderful, a tool that has been used by every progressive movement in history, essentially, is now interpreted by so many observers as a bad thing that is used to do more bad things? The good thing about free speech is that it allows you to challenge poor arguments. And so if your arguments are poor, it is very, very helpful, very, very helpful to present the idea of free speech as something yeah. that only evil people do. I think this is a pure tactical thing from those people, which is they understand that a lot of the arguments that they have, they don't really make any sense and they're not going to bring the country with them. But if they can prevent anyone from challenging them, if they can guilt trip anyone who challenges that by calling them names, then they're going to get more of the airwaves, which they have been quite successful at doing for some time. So I, I just think it's a tactical thing. And uh, it's something that I think we're starting to make progress on, actually. I think we mm -hmm. are starting to get to a point, perhaps the ridiculousness of the claims has got to such a point that you know the vast majority of the public are starting to see through it. I don't think there's that many people, re reasonable people nowadays, who would really agree with that point of view. Okay, let's talk about Western guilt. Mm. There's a great chapter in, in your book, which the title of which is Stop Feeling Guilty About Race, Whiteness and Slavery, which, I mean, really sums up the entire chapter incredibly well. And it has this great opening story about the fact that your great-grandfather was a slave and how infuriating or confusing people find it when you say that. Because, of course, when we think about slavery, we now exclusively think about the uh, slave trade um, the from Africa. And uh, well, I Well, Brendan, not even that. So forgive me for interrupting, yeah. but actually, uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you kind of helped my argument here because <laughs> actually we don't even talk about the slave trade from Africa. Mm. We talk specifically about the transatlantic yes, slave trade that's right. because we are the ones that did it. That's yeah. that's the logic, right? Yeah. And my argument, whenever people talk about, well, are we teaching enough about the history of this issue, is no, we're not. <laughs> we're really, really not. Because if we did teach enough about the history of this issue, you would know and your listeners would know that the trans-Saharan slave trade also taking black slaves out of Africa, which was run for longer, had a higher death and took more black people out of Africa as slaves than the Western colonial powers ever did, was, <laughs> was there happening over the same period and longer. And by the way, only stopped because the Western colonial powers made it stop. <laughs> but we don't know that because we don't get taught about that. Yeah. We don't get taught about what happened in my country in the Russian Empire where serfdom, which was effectively slavery, was in place again during the exact same period. And slavery all around the world was in place during the exact same period. So the position that we find ourselves in, and I give this example in the book, is imagine that vegans eventually get their way. They outlaw the consumption of meat and the husbandry of animals in the West. And the Western powers get to a point where we all think consuming animals is the worst thing you could do. 
right? Would we then claim that we, the first people who've actually outlawed this practice, are the worst <laughs> people in the world when it comes to this issue? Or would we conclude that actually we are very progressive about it compared to the past? Now, we cannot change the past. We cannot go back and undo the fact that, yes, our ancestors took a lot of black slaves out of Africa. It was an awful thing to do, and the transatlantic slave trade was horrific. It truly was. But ev as we say in Russian, everything is understood in context. And the context of this issue is, is every great civilization was built on slavery. Every single one of them. Human beings were the first good that was ever traded by other human beings. Mm. Every great monument that you go and see, whether it's in ancient Greece or ancient Rome or wherever, was built by slaves. Mm. And th that's kind of the great irony of this whole issue, which is the way we talk about slavery is extremely Western-centric yeah, yeah. to the point where some people might call it racist. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, uh, just going to raise that precise issue with you, which is there is a Western centricity to so much of this discussion about why the West is terrible, because I think you, you quote Thomas Sowell in your book where he says you can praise every culture apart from Western culture, and you can blame no culture for things that go wrong except Western culture. And there is that kind of incredibly Western-centric view which says that we are the source of all ill in the world. And it can seem self-loathing, it is self-loathing, and you describe in the book how it is a form of self-hatred. And it can seem very much like a, a form of ostentatious self-flagellation, aren't we gross and horrible? But it's also a way of saying we are the center of the entire moral universe, and we are everything we do has determined the fate of people across the world and continues to do so. In, you know, The shadow of every decision and action we take continues to determine people's lives. It's an incredibly... <laughs> It has a kind of neo-colonial vibe to it in intellectual terms. But I wanted to ask you, just following on from what you said there about slavery, I wanted to ask you why you think slavery has become such a focal point in these discussions. Because as you've just said, one of the problems with it is that it's not being taught in a rounded way in terms of the history of slavery and the role that it's played throughout human history. It is being taught in a way that will make us look particularly bad, that what, when we did it, it was the most unspeakable crime in history. And when other people did it, we don't really need to talk about that. So it, it skews the historical record. But do, do you think there's an element where slavery has been embraced as the issue of our time, we've got to tear down statues of slave owners. We've got to talk about it in schools constantly. Students on university campuses claim they can't walk past a building named after a slave owner or a statue without feeling micro-aggressed. Has slavery been latched onto primarily to facilitate Western self-loathing rather than to enlighten society about the truth of history? I, yeah, I think it's a very convenient issue for activists to latch onto because it's not really something that anyone can do anything about. It's done. It's fixed. There's nothing more we can do. Yeah. There's no solution to be offered. And so it's a perfect issue if you want to continue to make claims on, on society, if you want to advance ideas like systemic racism or whatever, you can always fall back. It's a brilliant fallback position from which no, no one can really argue with it because we all accept slavery was awful. Yeah. The transatlantic slave trade, colonialism involved with it a huge terrible elements that we are all ashamed about, and rightly so. And so 
if your objective is to find the tool by which to make people who are already predisposed to feeling guilty feel more guilty and to paralyze them and to to end their ability to to have a sort of balanced perception of their society it's a very very effective tool uh, i i think that like i say i think the important thing is that we don't react too far in another direction and say well we must never talk about slavery i think yeah. it's really important yeah. that that we teach the history of this issue accurately and and we learn from it as best we can because i, I do think that the, some of the ideologies which talk about how some people are inferior to others that the, the human ability to rationalize certain types of behavior awful behavior we are also seeing now today you know we have people who have an ideology which supposedly is all about kindness and virtuousness who are going around and attacking people and mobbing people and and preventing them from speaking uh we must always be cognizant of the elements of our history which tell us how flawed our brains are how tribal we are how prone we are to doing awful things when we buy into a religion or an ideology even if that religion or that ideology isn't in and of itself particularly bad you know it's it's the fact that you think you have a great ideology and therefore you can go and kill people in defense of it that's the problem or you go in and enslave people in defense of it or because of it that's the problem and it's we've got to be present to our own vulnerability and susceptibility to these bad bad ways of being and bad ways of behaving which is why i think it's really important to teach about the history of racial discrimination the history of slavery in a rounded way so that we understand this is how it was done in russia and this is how it's being done in china and this is what we did and here's what we've learned kids here's what we've learned from that and what we learn from that is what martin luther king told us which is we should be judged by the content of our character and that we're all human beings and as long as we subscribe to the idea that we're all british we're not asian Brit, british asian or british irish or british this or we're british right that's the first thing about us that unites us or we're american we're not african american or caucasian american or any of those ridiculous terms we are first and foremost citizens of this nation because we choose to live here we choose to subscribe to the values of this country and to respect them and that is what makes us human and that's what matters not our skin color not our sex and not what's between our legs yeah absolutely and uh, i fully agree with that and that was the God, who knows what these mean words mean anymore, but that was the liberal, progressive, <laughs> decent worldview for quite some time. And now it, it's not anymore. And now we do judge people by race through the politics of uh, racial identity. The politics of sex has been completely upended by the cult of gender and various other things. So all of those positive virtues that you've just described have kind of been slightly thrown in the trash can by recent developments. And that's something that it's really worth thinking about. And in relation to the history thing, one thing that worries me in terms of the teaching of history is I do now meet young people all the time when I people in their late teens, early twenties on campuses who go, who attend events who know the ins and outs of the slave trade and everything, every evil thing that Britain undoubtedly did, but they can't tell you very much about the English Civil War of the 1640s or the English Revolution or the absolutely intense struggle for democratic rights in this country, for press freedom, for freedom of speech, which inspired people across the entire globe uh, to fight similarly for those things. And, and those wonderful, positive 
uh, elements of British history, the enlightenment of British history tends to get lost by this obsessive focus on the dark n nature of British history. And that mm -hmm. I think is just so skewed. And also it will alienate people from the country they live in because they will come to think this is a pretty horrible place. And on that, on that question of this being a horrible place, there's, there's one irony that you touch on in the book, which is in relation to the question of immigration and the fact that we now have leftish or, or woke or whatever opinion formers who do two things. Firstly, they paint Britain as this unforgivably racist hellhole, and they want more and more immigrants to come here. And <laughs> as you point out, I mean, you, there's a there's a brilliant part in the book where you wonder if their demonization of Britain is really a subtle way of saying to people like you, uh, fuck off back to Russia, because it's so relentless in terms of how, how crap they say this country is. But then they say to people around the world, come here, no borders, come in, you know, sail across the channel. And there is such a profound irony to that, isn't there? Where on the one hand, you're saying, this is a racist, Islamophobic, awful place where minorities' lives are uh, are, are terrible. Mm. But let's throw open the borders and get more and more people in here. How how do you explain that phenomenon in particular? I think there's a section of the progressive left, and it's also a phenomenon in sections of the right. Of course, uh, they're both utopians. They mm. believe in a perfect world. And so when they talk about this country being racist, what they, what they don't mean that it is com racist by comparison to another country in the world today, because if, if they compared Britain to other countries, they'd rapidly find out it's one of the most tolerant places in the world. Yeah. They're not comparing to any historical. Uh, country that ever existed, because if they did that, they would find that not only are we one of the most welcoming tolerant places in the world today, but also in the entire history of human civilization. What they mean is there are incidents that happen that we are not happy about, mm. and that means the country is racist. Mm. And of course, if you have that approach, then you're never going to be satisfied with the society that you have. And uh, utopianism is a very dangerous thing, whether it's on the right or left, because People are not reckoning with the reality that there are no solutions, as Thomas Sowell, who, who I quote in the book, uh, says, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. You're not going to get to a society where nobody has the wrong opinion. You're not going to have a society where there is not a single racist that's still left alive. It's just not going to happen. And so what you can do, look, Brendan, it's like, we can't eliminate murder. Yeah. We can't eliminate rape. Mm. We, we can't eliminate child abuse. So how, why do we think that on, on other issues, we're going to get to a point where we've got to 100% of what we want? That's not how it works. And we've understood on every other issue, for example, look at, like I say, crime and murder, for example, that there is a trade-off between safety, our safety from being murdered, and the, right, and the rights and, and freedoms of our fellow citizens. Because we could solve the problem of murder. You just put every man between, I don't know, 15 and 45 in prison, just without any crime, and you 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 get a long way towards eliminating murder. But we don't do that because we understand that that is not a trade off that we want to be making. And so, upending all of society and demonizing ourselves because some idiot on Twitter said something to a footballer doesn't seem to me to be a commensurate response to the nature of the problem. Yeah. So we've got to get away from the utopianist thinking and have pragmatic 
ways of looking at this issue. And that's one of the reasons that in the book, I also talk about wealth inequality. I talk about the housing crisis because it really isn't, you know, I, I think some people would be wary that my book is an immigrant's love letter to the West is some kind of like anti-woke terrain. Mm. It really isn't. I'm trying to chart some sensible solutions from a pragmatic point of view about how we improve our society. Yeah, it is. And that comes through uh, very strongly. And one of the things that really connected with me about the book, and which I wanted to ask you a question about, because it it also made me think um, and made me wonder about certain things. So there is a part in the book where you talk about uh, the unwillingness of some people now even to talk about anything like Western culture or Western civilization. And there are people out there who say there is no such thing as Western culture. There's no such thing as Western civilization. It's a fantasy and there's no Western exceptionalism. And so I wanted to press you on that because I think there are two schools of thought here, both of which I have a bit of a problem with. So on the one hand, there is this relativistic culture, which says, the West isn't special. In fact, we're pretty bad. There's nothing exceptional about us. And some indigenous ways of thinking and indigenous ways of living are equally valid to what we do over here. So you have that over there, which I think is problematic. But then you you do have remnants of the gung-ho, <laughs> you know, uh, the West is is the only form of civilization on earth. And, and before the West, everyone was just a crazy, regressive, savage, living in a hut, which obviously discounts the great contributions to human thinking that were made by, I don't know, the Egyptians or the Greeks or Muslims during the great Islamic uh, enlightenment period. So how do you straddle that? Where on the one hand, you, and I think you're absolutely right to do this, you want to defend the idea that the West is actually right now the best place for someone to live and and the freest place. Uh, touch wood that will stay as it is, while at the same time not falling into that camp, which I think some people who would consider themselves friends of ours or comrades of ours or supporters of ours sometimes do fall into, which is the notion that the, the West is the only thing that matters and everything else that came before it or everything that's outside of it is somehow inferior. How do you mm. straddle that? issue. Well, I'm very much saying the opposite, which is why Mm. I'm trying to give people a perspective of what things are like in other countries. Uh, There are advantages to societies which are more communitarian. Uh, There's no question, for example, that, you know, the atomization of the family unit in particular in the West is a problem and it's not been as rapid in other places around the world. So I'm not saying the West is perfect. What I am saying, however, is if you are a Western-minded person like me, who's been brought up with the idea that actually being able to speak your mind is important, there are many places around the world where people don't think that. And that's fine. They're allowed to not think that. Uh, I just wonder whether we want to become like those societies. Uh, it's And it's the same with many, many other things. So I guess my argument is not so much that the West is best for everyone, but I do think that there are certain things that make the West very good for people like us. And if you want to live in a different society, if you want to, for example, live in a society where you have a single leader who decides the direction of the country, who no one's allowed to question, there are plenty of options. And if I, if that's what you want, I invite you to go and live in one of those societies. Yeah. If you are unhappy with the state of women's rights in this country, uh, I invite you to go and live in Saudi Arabia. 
and, and have a look at what that works like and make up your own mind, but at least understand that what we have in the West can be compared to other societies and you for yourself can judge. There are plenty of people from the UK, for example, who go and live in Asia and they're very happy there because that society matches their preferences more. And that's fine. I, I have no, I'm not making any great claim about how Western values are the only unique yeah. values that anyone in the world must respect. But as a citizen of the West, as someone who aligns with the values that the West used to triumph, I want the West to be that way. I don't want us to adopt late Soviet thinking and implement it in modern Britain. That's all I'm saying. Now, if you want to go and live in that kind of society, please be my guest. And this is one of the things that always makes me wonder about these racial activists is if Britain is so bad, why do none of them leave, Brendan? Why, why don't ever? Why don't none of them ever go back to places that they've come from or their families come from? If they are better, perhaps they'd like to go back there and experience that for themselves. Uh, my point is this: if you come to the West as I have, or if your parents have brought you to the West, you have a duty to integrate into this society, to learn the language of this society, to understand the values of this society, to respect the laws of this society, to not demand that we create an alternative legal system. And I'm not just talking about Muslims here. I, I, as someone who has Jewish ethnicity, I'm troubled by the fact that there are Jews who want a Jewish court system in the UK. Likewise, I'm troubled by the fact that some people think that in a country where we don't have blasphemy laws, that mm -hmm. we must respect their religion mm. and their right to in, in insist upon their religion being treated differently to other ways of thinking and other belief systems. This is not the way we do things here. And if that's your attitude, I think if you think that there's a better society out there that caters better to what you want, I'm sure they'd welcome you there. Yeah. Uh, that that brings me on to a couple more things I wanted to ask you about. The first of which is the real world consequences of some of this stuff, because you know I'm sure some of our critics. This is something that we hear all the time. That you know, you and I, people like you and me, are just fighting a culture war, and we're just anti woke, which is not, I don't think, what we are at all. And and your book makes very clear that that you are thinking carefully about these issues and about solutions to them in terms of what we might do differently. But the point I often make is there are real world consequences to the cultures that people like you and me are criticizing. So for example, you mentioned there, you know, bringing in blasphemy laws by the back door. We know that there is currently a school teacher in this country who's been in hiding for a year because he showed an image of Muhammad to his school kids during a discussion on blasphemy and freedom and a horrible intolerant mob of religious fanatics essentially hounded him into hiding. And um, even worse than that, because that's what intolerant mobs do, was that teaching unions didn't defend him very well, the media ignored it, the po political class didn't say very much, and what they did say was not good. So these are the real world consequences. That's just one example. Another example currently in the news is the extraordinary report coming out about the Telford child abuse scandal, uh, hundreds and hundreds of kids and young girls and young women were abused over a long period of time. And little was done about it because of nervousness about race and nervousness about upsetting the multicultural apple card or however we want to describe it. Those are real world consequences of the culture of cowardice, the culture of 
self-hatred, I guess, and and this fear that everything we do and say is potentially racist, so maybe we should not do and say very much at all. So uh, this goes beyond a kind of slightly abstract discussion, although I'm entirely in favor of abstract discussions. And as you indicate in your book, it goes beyond that. And it actually touches upon how society is organized and how people conceive of their place in society as well. You're right, Brendan. These uh, We had a guy on the show recently called Rob Henderson, who's very, very good. And he was the guy who coined the phrase luxury beliefs. Mm. And this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the fact that you know, the political landscape of a society is set by its political and media and, and intellectual elite. And these are not people who were living in Telford. These are not people whose daughters were being raped in Telford. And so uh, their concern was not so much for those children. Their concern was for their ideology, which is the ideology of multiculturalism, which I, as a dark-skinned immigrant in this country, reject completely. I think it's a dangerous, very, very dangerous ideology that is in, by its very design divisive and designed to turn people against each other instead of encouraging them, as I did earlier in this conversation, to integrate, yeah. to come here and adopt British identity. That doesn't mean you have to go down the pub and smash 10 pints back every Saturday, <laughs> but it does mean that you adopt some of the values and you understand that, yes, maybe in your culture, criticizing your religious figure is wrong and bad and perhaps even punishable by death, but you don't live in that society. Yeah. You've chosen to come here and you have to adjust, not the society. So I say we, a lot of people who had nothing to do with this have paid a very heavy price for some of this ideology, which is why ideology bothers me no matter what it is. Yeah. We have to be able to look at the facts dispassionately and make decisions according to British law and British values and British traditions, not some sort of attempt to create some kind of utopia, which is, again, I think where a lot of this is coming from. Okay. So that's very well put. And now my final question for you, I think if people want some ideas for how we move on from all of this, they really should read your book. But let's just touch on that briefly in, in this final question. You mentioned earlier that you do think the tide is turning on issues like freedom of speech, that there are significant numbers of people out there who think this is an important value and are not about to let it fall by the wayside. And I think there are other issues too on which some battles are being won and some and some ground is being won back. But I wanted to just to ask you how you think things might go in the next few years. I mean, we currently have the Tory leadership contest, horrible racist Tory party with an incredibly diverse uh, list of candidates. It really is extraordinary to see, some of whom are terrible in my view, and some of whom are very good. Um, mm. And some of whom are very good on precisely. As it should be, Brendan. Yeah, as it should be. As it should be, exactly. And some of them are very good on precisely the kind of issues that you talk about in your book in relation to standing up for the for Western values, standing up for Britain and British history, which is a very radical thing these days, and standing up for freedom of speech and freedom of of thought and freedom of conscience. So when you look at the political sphere and when you look outside the political sphere too, in terms of the discussions that are taking place, do you feel generally optimistic that people will start to recognize that Western values and Western civilization are good things? Or do you think there are tough battles first before we'll get to that situation? I think there are, there are still more tough battles, but as you say, we are starting to see the, I don't know if the pendulum is swinging back yet, but I do think it's slowing mm. for sure. 
uh, I think some battles are being won. Uh, it will create new fractures. Of course, you're seeing it now how, uh, for example, radical feminists or gender critical feminists, yeah. uh, I think they're seeing that they've made enough progress on that issue. They're seeing some big wins. And uh, now they're, they're, they're feuding with uh, conservatives now yeah. because they, I think they sort of, they're, they're thinking they don't need them anymore, yeah. which is an interesting uh, gamble. We will see how that plays out. But I think more broadly, actually, I am optimistic on some of the cultural stuff, but I do think that uh, very few people understand the scale of the economic disaster that's coming, mm. Uh, mm. the scale of the economic impact on ordinary people's lives that is coming. Uh, it's not just going to be that your heating bill has gone up. It's going to be your fuel prices. It's going to be your food prices. That's going to carry on fr from the economists that I talk to for quite some time. So we're in for a very turbulent period of time, which may mean that we spend less time talking about all these cultural bollocks that actually no one really cares about, I hope, in the country at large, really, genuinely. I hope we can get past, you know, I was saying this, we did a book launch on trigonometry with Francis interviewing me yesterday. And I was saying like, it's great that some of the candidates for the Tory leadership can define what a woman is, but I've got higher ambitions for a prime minister. <laughs> yeah. I, I want them to address the things that most people listening to this podcast actually care about, which is, the cost of living, where the child's going to go to school, can they see a GP? Are we going to be able to go on holiday this year without getting our bags lost at the airport because there's not enough staff? All of these issues are way more important than some of the cultural stuff that we've been forced to talk about. And I'm frankly tired of explaining GCSE biology to people who should know better, right? So I hope we can get past some of that. But I do think, I really, really hope that more people start to understand the scale of the economic disaster that's coming and start making preparations because it's not going to be pretty. It's going to be very, very difficult for a lot of people. Uh, and I think it's really important that people like you and people like me and other people in the public sphere and in the media sphere start to be able to talk about some of these other things that actually affect real people uh, and, and their lives in, in a material way because it's not going to be pretty, as I say. Constantine, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.